0: Matthew chapter number four, if you have your Bible, beginning in verse one, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Just as an FYI, that was a perfect quotation of a portion of Psalm 91. In other words, the enemy did not misquote the Bible. One of the greatest tricks that the enemy can get you into is to think you're believing the Bible when you're not believing the Bible. Because if he can get you to think you're believing the Bible or properly applying the Bible, then he can get you stuck in your ignorance because then you think that you're obeying God and there's no changing you. And that's why it's so important for us to not just know what the Bible says, but understand what the Bible means. Amen? He goes on and he says, again, the devil took him, or Jesus answered him and said, "Um, you shall not tempt the Lord your God or put him to a foolish test. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you. If you fall down and worship me, and Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. By the way, one version says, then the devil left him for a more opportune time. Which tells us that when it comes to resisting temptation, it's not a one-time event in our life. It's something that we have to constantly be in the position to do. Anyway, today I want to continue in our series, Stay Woke, where we are talking about waking up our minds in order to change our lives. And I want to talk to you about one of the keys to taking back your mind. And that is the mind-mouth connection. And I've entitled this sermon today, Talk Back. Because in order for you to take your mind back... You must talk back. I'll explain what that means in just a minute. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you make this message relevant and real? Help somebody today, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. This text is one of those texts that is absolutely fascinating to me. It is power-packed with so much good information about, for example, how to overcome temptation of any sort. One of the things that the text reveals to us is that there are really only three categories of temptation. Um, there's a lot of different temptations that are out there. But when you boil them all down, they all fall into three categories. And the, the first category of temptation is the lust of the flesh. And this is where the tempter says to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Now, notice he's not necessarily tempting him with something that is wrong. How many of you know bread is not wrong? Matter of fact, bread is downright right, isn't it? I mean, bread is amazing, especially on Sunday. You know, you got the gravy cooking on the stove and you come over with the Italian bread and you dip it right in there. And there's nothing better than that in all the world. The only time bread is not good is when you're on keto. Then bread is no good. I mean, it turns all the fat that you're eating into clog your arteries type stuff. But, but bread is not a bad thing. But the tempter tempts him to turn the stones into bread because his flesh was hungry, because he was instructed by God to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And so his flesh wanted something. And this is the lust of the flesh. And it's one of the big categories of temptation. And the lust of the flesh can manifest itself in all different kinds of ways. It's things that your flesh wants that it shouldn't have at a particular moment in time. And so he texts Jesus with this bread. You can have... Have a lust of the flesh. If you desire, you know, um, sex outside of God's context, that could be a lust of the flesh. You can have a lust of the flesh if you determine, um, af- if you if you desire affirmation or if you desire too much attention. You could have a, a lust of the flesh. It's it's something that your your flesh. Wants that at that moment is not right for your flesh to have, and so that's one of the big categories. And a lot of times, what we do is we say, "We say, well, that that one is wrong, and that one is okay, and that one is wrong." And it's all lust of the flesh, and it's it's why Jesus was able to be tempted at every point the Bible says literally every category it doesn't mean that he was tempted in every single way that we are tempted but in every category of temptation Jesus felt what it was like for his flesh to want something and have to deny it the second major category is the lust of the eyes Satan took him up to the pinnacle of the temple um, or the pinnacle of the high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said all these will I give you if you bow down and worship me and that's the lust of the eyes. It's when, when your eyes lead you to want something that is not right for you to have at that particular time. And so you can have a lust of the eyes. Again, maybe you see somebody who's attractive and you have a lust of the eyes. Or maybe you're watching TV and you have a lust of the eyes. Or you're on the computer, you have lust of the eyes. Or maybe you're shopping and you have lust of the eyes. You know, you, you pass by a store and, and you shouldn't have those particular clothes at that particular time because you need that money to pay your bills and, and you have a lust of the eyes. Or you walk into a car dealership and you see that little tiny red sports car that you've always wanted but you can't afford right now. That could be a lust of the eyes that you're having at that particular moment. The details are immaterial. It's the category. It's it's when your eyes pull you to want something. And then there's this third category. It's the, it's the pride of life. He said, he said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's when your ego wants to be fed. It's when you want to be large and in charge. It could be like you're the man of the house and you want everybody to know it. That's, that's that's the the pride of life, or maybe you're the matron of the house and you've got to control everything. That's the pride of life, or maybe you know you need to show everybody you know wherever you work that you know that you, that you you can control this and they, uh, you throw everybody underneath the bus because you want to be noticed and you want to be in charge. That's the the pride of life. These are the three categories of all temptations. And First John chapter two, verse number sixteen says, "For all that is in the world." The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. In other words, this is the way that Satan tempts everyone. It's the way he tempts you and me. It's the way he tempted Jesus. And it's the way he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Way back in the garden, how did he tempt him? He tempted him with these three categories. The lust of the flesh. Look at this tree. It's good to eat. The lust of the flesh. Look at this tree, it's good to make one wise, right? The lust of the eyes. Look at this tree, it'll make you like God, the pride of life. The same tree, Saints has got nothing new. He's a one trick pony. He's running the same routine on us over and over again. That's why the Bible says no temptation has taken you but such as common to man, right? But God is faithful he will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with every temptation also provide a way of escape. In other words, the temptations, the category, they're all the same. Same thing you struggle with. Same thing I struggle with. Same thing you struggle with. Same thing they struggle with. We all struggle with the same stuff. But here's the thing about Jesus. He showed us the way to overcome it. He didn't succumb. He overcame. And because he overcame, he's our high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted and tried at every point yet without sin. He was uniquely qualified to be the sinless, spotless savior of mankind because when the devil ran his routine on Jesus, he couldn't get Jesus to fall and so this this text is so power packed with so much good information and good uh, revelation I should say for how to overcome some theologians have said that the three categories of sin fall into provision right turn these stones into bread need something to eat got it When when we have a need we tend to to fall into temptation provision protection Throw yourself down and, and the angels will catch you. When we feel that we're threatened in some way, we have a tendency to fall into temptation because we wanna, we wanna protect ourselves. And then the last one, power. All these kingdoms I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. So some theologians have said it's, it's provision, protection, and power. But the point of the matter is it's all the same. We all get tempted in the, in the same way. And the other thing we look at when we, we find this, when we go into this text, why it's so intriguing to me is because it speaks to, for instance, when we are most vulnerable to temptation. And that's after a big high. Right, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Here's the voice of his father affirming him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately Satan tempts him. And so the scriptural takeaway is that you have to be vigilant. You have to be aware. You have to be on your game spiritually, especially after great victories in your life. Because we tend to relax after great victories. You know when I tend to relax? Sunday after I'm done preaching. And what I mean by relax is I don't want to really hear anything about God. Like I'm like, no, don't show me the Bible. Don't, don't, I don't want to listen to a worship song, you know. I like, because I I cram so much to prepare for the weekend and then I just give, 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 give. So like Sunday night and, and, and Monday, it's like, it's like usually when I... Drop my guard, you know, and, and so we, and, and that's when Satan will come and he'll throw things my way and, and that's when I want to eat carbs, you know, I'm just like, I don't care anymore, you know, Sunday night after church, I'm like, anybody going to Carmine's? Let's go have some, let's go have some pasta, right? It, it, I'm not as vigilant then as I normally am because the principle is this, after the great high, we have to stay vigilant because we remain vulnerable. And then the other thing we see why, why this verse is so fascinating to me is because it shows us that our our adversary especially attacks those who are alone and lonely. You know, you've heard it said before, an idle mind is the devil's playground, right? It's not good for man to be alone, God said when he created uh, uh, Adam. And then another place in Scripture says two are better than one, right? It's not good for us to be alone. Why? Well, we know our adversary is as, or roams around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. How do how do lions hunt? They look for the vulnerable one who's kind of gotten away from the pack. And so, you know, you got the whole pack of gazelles and they're all kind of going together. And then this one one gets kind of stranded by itself. Which one is the lion going after? Going after the vulnerable one that's alone. Because when you don't travel in a pack, you are open to attack. When you're not in the pack, you're open to attack. That's why we want to encourage you to be involved in small groups. That's why we want to encourage you to stay connected so so you're not vulnerable, so you're not out there on your own so that when something happens in your life and you begin to process the wrong way, because that happens to all of us, right? Something goes down and the devil starts to get us to process it the wrong way and your thinking gets wrong. You're around other people who can help pull you back to a place where you're not subject to attack when you get away from the pack you're subject to attack you gotta get with the group don't forsake the assembling of yourself together the scripture says even so much the more as you see the day approaching right and so when we look at this text it's fascinating on so many different levels but the most fascinating portion of it to me is how the how how Jesus was able to defeat the devil in the mind arena We know that this temptation was more than just physical, right? More than just Satan appearing to him. This was Satan messing with his mind. He he took him up to a high place. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. You can't see all the kingdoms of the world from any high place. So part of this was a mind trip. Have you ever been on a mind trip? Has Satan ever taken you on a mind trip? Where, you, where you, your mind starts going places that that are not healthy for your mind to go, you start focusing on those things, and and worry shows up, and depression shows up, and anxiety shows up, and fear shows up, and all the things that ninety five percent of the things we worry about studies show never even happen. But you spend all that time, and you get anxious and emotional and stressed out, and you you want to eat carbs. and I'm on keto right now. Carbs are on my I'm sorry, <laughs> you know. And, and so you want to you know it, it begins to have you go on a mind trip and that's what the devil does and what I love about this text is that Jesus shows us how to win the battle of the mind and here's the way you win the battle of the mind I think this is one of if not the greatest key to winning the battle of the mind and that is in order to win the battle of the mind you must talk back in order to take back your mind you have to talk back look at the whole temptation it's a war of words isn't it starts off The father speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Next thing we know, Satan says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. When Satan talks to Jesus, what does Jesus do? He talks back. What does he say? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What does Satan do? He says, well, it is also written, he shall give his angels charge over you. He'll bear you up in their wings, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So throw yourself off of this mountain. Satan talks to Jesus. What does Jesus do? Talks back. He says, it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to a foolish test. Satan speaks again, and he says, all these kingdoms I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. When Satan talks to Jesus, what does Jesus do? Talks back. He says, you shall not uh, worship the Lord your God only. Bow down before nobody else. What's he doing? He's teaching us a principle. And the principle is, whatever the enemy Talks to your mind in order to get victory you 've got to talk back. Now, this is not always a good way to live life if you 're married, you should not talk back right if you 're married, somebody eventually has to decide to to keep quiet right because that'll be you, praise the Lord. <laughs> I love my brother over here. And, and, and you know what? He was a man. And, and by the way, I, I think most of the time it should be the man who stays quiet. Yeah. Because, you know, women have to have the last word anyway. Not just play, just, just playing. Um, now, now, the reason why men should should stay, should stay still most of the time, here's the reason why. It's because you're the priest of the home. You, you've been given spiritual responsibility to make sure that there's peace in the home. Now, can I just say, that doesn't mean you have to be a pansy all the time, right? And sometimes you got to stand up for yourself, guys, you know, but, but for the sake of peace, sometimes you have to be okay with that. You have to be cool, you know, just, just pulling back. Kids should not talk back to their parents, right? So talk back is not a principle that works Across the board in life. But I'm telling you. That when it comes to taking your mind back. You've got to talk back. You cannot allow the enemy. To have the last word. Because if the enemy has the last word. That will be the thing that ruminates. In your mind. Let me let me go a little bit deeper. And tell you that the mood of your mind. Is determined by the words of your mouth. The conversation in your head. Gets altered by the words that come out of your mouth. The, the movie that is playing in, what do they got? That new sound at the movie theater. What do they call? They have a special theater now. It's, is it called the Adobe Theater? Somebody help me out. Y'all ain't never been to the movies. What's it called? Adobe Cinema. I got it right. It was Adobe, right? Praise the Lord. Everybody looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, what you talking about, fast? See, Adobe they got the, this, this. Not only do they got the HD screen now, but they got the Adobe sound. Everything is like really intense and stuff. You know that, that Adobe sound that's going off in your head? You know how you control that? The mood of your mind is determined by the words of your mouth. Listen to this. There's an area of science called neuro Now, we've heard of. Because I taught it to you, neuroplasticity. Remember that? Everybody remember neuroplasticity? That, that means that your brain is pliable and shapeable and moldable. That the brain that you have now is not the brain that you always have to have. And this is good news for all of the people who need brain development, right? Because it means that you can, you can get a better brain than you have now. You can get smarter than you are right now, neuroplasticity. Well, along the lines of neuroplasticity, there's another sub- culture of science known as neuro linguistics and neuro linguistics study how our mouth impacts our mind and therefore the structure of our brain and life experience. So let me read you a little excerpt and, I, and I'm going to go slow and give you some scriptural backing for all of this because science is only good when science aligns with God, right? And, and most of the time, if you give science enough time, it'll eventually catch up with God. Sometimes it doesn't start out there because a lot of what people purport is science is not science, it's theory. Right? There's a difference between theory and science. There's scientific theory and then there's scientific fact. Right? Scientific theory is just that, it's a theory. Right? But, but a lot of things start out as theories with no evidence behind them and then it's just somebody's you know uh postulate about the situation they're just they're just assuming because they want it to be that way and, and so there's a scientific area of study based on some evidence called neurolinguistics where it talks about how the mouth and the mind connect. In their book words can change your brain. Andrew Newberg and Robert Waldman write a single word has the power to influence the expression of genes that regulate physical and emotional stress. Now, on the surface, you may not think that's true, but I'll prove it to you. Imagine you're in a packed theater with only two exits, and somebody in the middle of the movie comes and goes, Fire! Guess what's going to happen to your emotional and physical stress? It's going to go up. A single word has the power in so many areas of life to regulate our emotional and physical stress. I'll I'll show you this progressively as we go. Positive words such as peace and love can alter the expression of genes. And, And this is not just something that happens randomly. It's because genes are being flipped on and flipped off. Epigenetics. Remember we talked about that. Positive words such as peace and love can alter the expression of genes, strengthening areas in our frontal lobes and promoting the brain's cognitive functioning. They propel the motivational centers of the brain into action according to the authors, and build resiliency. Conversely, hostile language can disrupt specific genes that play a key part in the production of neurochemicals that protect us from stress. A single word can increase the activity of our amygdala, the fear center of the brain. This releases dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters, which in turn interrupt our brain's functioning. This is especially true with regard to, listen, logic, reasoning, and language. All the married people, let me see your hand. All the people in a, in a relationship, let me see your hand. All the married people and all the people in relationships, let me see your hand. This should be almost everybody, right? Because I didn't say like a relationship that is a marriage relationship. Everybody's in a relationship somewhere or somehow. It could be a boss relationship, a friend relationship, a significant other relationship, whatever, right? In that relationship, and specifically in relation to marriage, anybody ever have an argument where your your ability to reason goes out the door? Has that ever happened to anybody? Right? And all of a sudden it's like, it's like, the, the stuff that comes out is so beyond, you know, what has happened at the moment. It's, it's like all, all reasoning goes out the window and, and you have that argument and, and two days ago you were in love, but now you want to get a divorce. All reasoning just goes out the window, right? Anybody ever have an argument in marriage where not only does reasoning go out the, the window, but the ability to express yourself articulately goes out the window. Has that ever happened to anybody else where you get so mad? It's just, Dude! right? You just, it just And you don't know why you just can't formulate the words at that particular time. Here's the reason. Because words affect on a, on a, in a neuro level, the expression of our genes, which turn off and on logic, reasoning, and language. Angry words send alarm messages through the brain and they partially shut down the logic and reasoning centers located in the frontal lobes. So, so when we are talking at somebody or angrily to somebody, and we think that we are having our point heard, it's just the opposite. When, when, you, when you yell something at somebody... They, you're, you're, you're putting them in a position where it's harder for them to grasp what you're saying. So it's much better if you want to be heard to say it in such a way that people's defenses stay down. Because then their mind can actually work the way it was created to work so they could process what you're saying. And and you're going to see this is all in the Bible, by the way. Everything I'm telling you right now, it's all backed by Scripture. But I'm just explaining it to you. And so the authors go on to say, using the right words can transform our reality. By holding a positive and optimistic, optimistic word in your mind, you stimulate frontal lobe activity. This area includes specific language centers that connect directly to the motor cortex responsible for moving you into action. Did you get that? You didn't get it? Okay. That's why the Bible says, how shall they, how shall they understand except there be a teacher? Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me break it down for you, okay? Here's what that means, that, that a word that is the right word can move you into the right action. That's what that means. A wrong word Can move you into the wrong action. Now, in case you don't think that's backed up by scripture, it very much is. James says your your tongue is a little member, and he compares it to the to the rudder of a ship. What does the rudder of a ship do? Moves the ship in one direction or another. James teaches us that our mouth is the steering wheel of our life. That as our mouth goes, our life goes. And, and we thought that that was just some type of blabbing and it positive confession type of thing because we didn't know that there was actually science behind the mouth and the mind and how your mouth triggers your brain to work a certain way. And if you say the right words, what happens in your brain is something is triggered that moves you or pushes you in a certain kind of direction. That's why God is all over the mouth and what comes out of the mouth. And you shall have what you say. It's more than just bl- it and grab it. It's more than just name it and claim it. It is the way that we have been structured to work. God knows that. And science is now just catching up with God. Give science a little bit more time, it'll prove everything in the Bible. It's so amazing. And so the authors go on they say um, Our research has shown that the longer you concentrate on positive words, the more you begin to affect other areas of the brain. Functions in the parietal lobe start to change, which changes your perception of yourself. I'll break that down in a minute. And the people you interact with. So so words that are spoken affect your parietal lobe, which is the place that you begin to derive your self-worth from. Have you ever wondered why words spoken to you can, can hurt you deeply and make you feel a certain kind of way and shape your image of who you are. It's because those words are not just connecting arbitrarily. Those words are connecting with the processors in your mind and it is altering your image of you. And then listen to what they go on and they say. They say, um, a positive view of yourself will bias you towards seeing the good in other people. Whereas a negative self-image will incline you towards suspicion and doubt. And let me tell you what that means. It basically means that aside from a very real reason why you ought to be suspicious of somebody else, when people are generally suspicious of other people and think the worst of other people, it's not necessarily because there's a reason to. It's because they don't think too highly of themselves. This is deep. So, so people's problem with other people most of the time is a reflection of a problem with themselves. And, and that when you, when you love yourself, which by the way is a spiritual thing to do. Remember I did a whole series way back when I'm gonna, I'm gonna release a book soon called, called, um, Oxygen Mask. It was the series, Loving Yourself to Spiritual Health. Because if you truly don't love yourself, then you will be no good to God. Because if you don't love yourself, you're not going to love anybody else. Because what you're going to reflect on other people is how you see yourself. So if you hate you, you're going to hate them. Because how could you like somebody else but not like you? Right, And this is all talking about the reason why this whole thing goes in emotion is because of certain words throughout the course of one's experience that have been lodged in your brain that literally, if we really get deep, have, have been become part of you on a subconscious level. Subconscious meaning you don't even realize it's been planted there. And we talked about how 99% of all brain activity happens not at the conscious level, but at the subconscious level. And so this is why anything that affects your brain is so powerfully important to your overall health. And so you have to be careful on what you allow to affect your brain. Over time, it says the structure of your thalamus will also change in response to your conscious words, thoughts, and feelings, and they say, and we believe that the thalamatic changes affect the way in which you perceive reality. This is deep here 's what it means: Words are powerful. Words are not just powerful for obvious reasons, words are powerful for for reasons. That we don't even know are happening to us as words are being spoken. The right words affect our brain's cognitive functioning. In other words, if the right words are spoken, this is why a good teacher does not condemn or tell a student all the things wrong with the student... A good teacher will try to get the best out of the student by highlighting the things that the student does well. Because in an environment where there is reinforcement of good, it enables the good in us to come out. And if you don't think that's scriptural, it is the what of God that leads us to repentance? You go to this church, you ought to know that scripture. It is the what of God that leads us to repentance? Kindness—it actually says the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, right? God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Sure, God does judge us and does punish us and and and, and does correct us. Would be a better way of stating it. But but correction and 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 judgment is never God's first reaction. God's first reaction is always. Goodness because God knows that the way He's created us is that the best in us comes out when we receive goodness even when we don't deserve it. Are you with me? So the goodness of God leads us to repentance. His mercies are new Every morning, great is His faithfulness. Right, God was in Christ Jesus, not imputing or counting up the world's sins and holding them against us. Right, but but rather nailing them to the cross. Why? Because God understands the way that we have been made, and words are that powerful. They 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 can improve our cognitive functioning, or they can they can um, I don't know the word make it worse. The right words switch on our brain. The wrong words switch off our brain. The right words affect the genes that regulate emotional and physical stress, and so do the wrong words. Words affect how we perceive reality. Words have a profound effect on the way in which our brains are shaped and operate, and therefore the experiences that we have. Words even affect us at a genetic level. Words do that. Is it any reason why Jesus talked back? Oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand Satan. You don't get to have the last word. You, you don't get to be the final thought that gets launched into my head. Uh, the word of God, what God has said, that becomes the thing that gets lodged in my mind because it and it alone is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. The word of God affects your brain. The right way. Talk back. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. See, we, we kind of know that scripture, but we didn't really understand why that scripture works. Now now you get why it works, because something is happening between your mouth and your mind. It's creating a harvest in your life. Talk back. Proverbs chapter 16. I'm skipping 15, going to 16. says, Gracious words... Are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Where do the words affect the soul, the mind? I script over, skipped over scripture that says, a kind word turns away wrath. Why? Because something's happening to the processors in the person. When you say the right thing to somebody, you can change everything that's causing all of that expression of anger and hostility that shouldn't be there just because it's not because they go, Oh, you're nice. It's actually because something hits them in their brain that triggers the right response from them. And so we need to not let the devil have the last word, but don't just talk back anything. Some people talk back foolishness. Right, like you know, somebody to say you know you're ugly. Well, so are you. It's foolishness. That that doesn't that doesn't do anything, right? Um, some people just you know they 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 don't speak back. Don't speak back foolishness. Don't speak back relative truth. What's relative truth? It's truth that is relative to the time in which you live. Right. So so depending upon when you live, truth changes. Right. Give us 20 more years and not only will we be trying to make marijuana legal, we'll be trying to make crack legal. And it will be relative truth, right? But but whether it is truth or isn't truth, it's not dependent upon what society thinks of it. It's dependent upon what God says about it, right? Because God's truth is never relative. God's truth is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, He doesn't change. And so I don't talk back when Satan tells something to my mind that isn't true, relative truth or societal truth. What I talk back is what God says about it because God's truth never, ever, ever, ever changes. So I talk back what is written. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus, who is God, chose to stick with what is written because, listen, the word of God is your primary weapon. Remember we hold our Bible up? This is my Bible. It is is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. You think that's just some, some little thing that we say. I'm trying to get that in you over and over and over again to let you know that, that if you're going to eat one food group, the one food group that you've got to eat more than anything else is the Word of God. It's your primary weapon. Ephesians chapter 6 talks to us about the Word of God. And it, it says, put on the helmet of salvation... And take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But Ephesians, prior to chapter six, uh, prior to verse number 17, earlier in the chapter, I think it's around 12 or 13, talks about the armor of God. It talks. It starts off with the belt of truth, right? And the belt of truth is also the word of God. It's a different aspect of the word of God. The belt of truth, the belt, by the way, is, is where everything else hinges on, right? Your, your pants stay up because of your belt, your shirt stays tucked in because of your belt. Unless, of course, you have an excessively large belly and then your, your, your shirt comes out anyway. And how do I know that? Because that has happened to me on more than one occasion. But that's a story for another day. The belt is the center so the word of God becomes the center. That becomes the place in which we go to, to, to get our centering in everything in life. But, but that's just the written word of God, but it doesn't become a sword to you until you understand what it means and can use it adeptly. Right. Um, you, you know, that what's that, what's that show on TV where they make them swords, Forge in fire, right? If you put one of those swords in my hands, it wouldn't be good. I, I never was trained on how to use a sword. So, so what that sword may be able to do, I might not be able to do with it because I've never been trained on how to use that thing. So you have the, the belt of truth, the word of God, which is which is the starting place. But unless you learn how to use it, it, it's not as effective in your hands as it could otherwise be. And so when Ephesians talks about the helmet of salvation and the word of God, which is a sword to you, it's not just talking about the written word of God. It is talking about the word of God that you understand that is revelation to you so that way you could use it effectively. So that way, when the devil quotes something accurately, like Psalm 91, but still out of context, you'll understand that he's not using it the right way so that your mind won't be deceived because the reality of the matter is you can make the word of God say anything you want. For instance, did you know Moses played tennis? He served in Pharaoh's court. Quote, Unquote. Did you know that the apostles in the upper room drove Hondas? They were all in one place and in one accord. <laughs> if you don't know the word of God, if it's not revelation to you, it'll do you no good. And you will walk around in the arrogance of ignorance. See, the- arrogance of ignorance is when people start out with a perception of truth that they want to be truth. And then they go find a verse to support their truth that isn't truth. And they walk in the arrogance of ignorance because they don't start out with a clean slate that says to God, God, here I am. And whatever you say is right is right. I'm not going to make my right be right. I'm going to conform to your right. We need to go to the word of God, not to prove our Ourselves right but to stand for what God says and so the word becomes a sword and this is why the enemy is after the word so much because he knows if the word ever becomes revelation to you that he cannot defeat you so this is why the average church person goes to church daylight savings and snow days excluded Give you all the break for that, but this is why the average church member goes to church one point seven times a month. You thought it's because she was busy, and you became arrogant in your ignorance i 'm just busy <sighs> I love, like like look can I tell somebody, can I tell all the busy people something? The whole world is busy. <laughs> I love talking to people who think they 're excessively busy. you know they walk around. <sighs> I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I'm like, yo, chill, man. We're all busy. Everybody's busy. It's not a matter of busy or not busy. It's a matter of priority and lack thereof. What's your priority? You do what you want to do. Right? And so we become arrogant in our ignorance. And we show up at church 1.7 times a month, national average, because we're busy and we don't realize what that really is, is the enemy stealing the word. You thought you made you busy. You didn't make you busy. It's what the enemy has done to society in order to steal the Word of God from becoming revelation in our life because how shall they know except they have a teacher? It's the reason why it's so hard for us to get to Bible studies. The reason why it's so hard for us to be involved in a small group is because we think we're busy. But what the enemy is trying to do is stop the word of God from becoming a sword in our hand. Because once you pull out the sword of the spirit, guess what happens? Eventually, he's got to leave. He can't stand against the sword of the spirit. He'll stay there long enough to know whether you really know it, though. You just throw one little scripture at him, and then, you know, next time he comes out you, you cave. He's like, I got this one. This one's a fake Christian. You heard of fake news? I could tell you something. There's fake Christians. And so he'll stay along, but you use that word. He's coming after that word over and over and over again. That's why Jesus gave us the parable of the sower. He said the sower came and sowed the word. And these are they that fell by the worst wayside. As soon as they heard the word, listen to this, immediately Satan came to steal the word. Jesus heard, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately he was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Why? Because the enemy does not want that word to get lodged in your mind and in your heart. Because if that word ever gets lodged in your mind and your heart, and when you begin to know it, that you know it, that you know it, that you know it, that you know it, it, he cannot win the battle of the mind. You'll prevail every single time. So the enemy comes to steal the word immediately. And the way he comes to steal it is by twisting it. And twisting the word is not misquoting the word. That's easy. Like, you know, somebody came to you and said, you know, the Bible says for God so loved the world um, that he gave us um, lollipops so that we could be saved. You'd say, no, that's not what the Bible says because it's it's incorrect. So the enemy doesn't misquote it. He just twists it. Right? And so what God wants us to do is to know it so much that he can't twist it in our lives. So here's what you need to do. In order for you and I to take back our mind, we need to talk back whenever and however Satan speaks to our mind. And Satan speaks to our mind in a couple of different ways. Let me give them to you real quick. First way he speaks to our mind is, is through using people. And not just people who are angry and hateful, and not just the news and all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes he'll use people who are close to you to speak something to you. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he looks at his disciples, and he says, Son of man must be betrayed, handed over to be crucified for three days, and three nights he'll be in the belly of the earth, and on the third day he'll rise again. By the way, it's amazing to me how the disciples didn't know when Jesus died that he was coming back. Because he told them on more than one occasion. But it just goes to show you how the adversity of circumstances can cause us to forget what the Word of God has to say. That's why we have to be alert and be sober in our thinking and in our mind so that we know what's going on, so that we don't forget, right? And he tells them this. And then you remember what, do you remember what, what Peter does? I'm not going to get you this time, Ilga, Ilda. So I used him as an example in the prior two services. He, he, the Bible says this. Matthew chapter, I think it's 16, verse 22, is he said, Peter took Jesus aside. You ever, had any, you ever have to pull somebody aside to tell them something? You know, it's, not like, it's not like, you know, a good thing. It's like, you know, you're going to pull them aside and kind of straighten them out. It says he pulled them aside to rebuke him. I mean, you got to you got to admire the gumption of Peter. I mean, this is pretty bold right here. Jesus says something, and he pulls him aside, and he rebukes him. And he says to him, he says, Lord, far be it from you. This shall not happen to you. Guess what Satan was doing? He was using a friend to speak to Jesus' mind. He wanted to put a, a thought, a word in Jesus' mind, because if the word got into Jesus' mind and stayed there, it would dissuade Jesus from his destiny. So what did Jesus do? Talk back. He said to Peter, by the way, y'all know that you pull Jesus aside all the time, right? I never do that. Yeah, you do it all the time. You pull him aside and you rebuke him. As you say, come here, Jesus. You understand I'm busy 2.3 times a month, don't you? Sorry, can't be more faithful to church. Come here, Jesus, I gotta talk to you. (laughs) This tithe thing, I got more bills than you know what I got, Jesus. Pulling Jesus aside. Why are you pulling? Because you're telling Jesus he's wrong about what he said. You're telling Jesus that there's a reason that qualifies you to disobey what he said in his word. And notice I'm trying to say that with a smile so your brain don't go off. That's why the Bible says to rebuke, reprove with all long-suffering and doctrine, right? There's a way in which you, you need to do it, right? Speak the truth, how? In love. And so he pulls Jesus aside, and and he tries to put a word in Jesus' mind. And what does Jesus do? Jesus talks back. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God. What is Jesus doing? He's talking back. He's saying, listen, there's no way. I don't care if you use Peter. I don't care if you use my wife. I don't care if you use my kids. I don't care if you use my husband. I don't care if you use my best friend or my boss. You are not getting the last word in my mind. Talk back. So he'll use people. But then he'll also use nothing. You'll be sitting there. Minding your own business. It's a nice day out today. It's beautiful. Day off, going to relax. Got the lawn chair out. Got the iced tea, unsweetened, for those of you on keto. Everything's beautiful. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you'll feel depressed. Out of nowhere, worry will grip your mind. Has that ever happened to anybody but me? Said, "No." You're like, "Where in the world did that come from?" This is a good day. Everything's right. What's wrong? What's wrong now? He'll use the stillness to begin to to speak to you. And what do you do when 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 he talks to you in in that kind of way? Psalm 42, verse five. Here's what David said. He said, "Why are you cast down, on my soul?" David was chilling. I like to say he was chillaxing, chilling and relaxing, chillaxing and. And all of a sudden, his his mind went off. His mind started to go with this, and David said, "Oh no, I'm not. I'm not let it go unchecked." He said, "Why are you cast down on oh, my soul?" He said, "Soul, you don't get to choose which direction you go off on." And then he talks to his soul. He said, "And why are you divided within me? Hoping God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance." In other words, you don't get to think and act like you want to, soul he'll use just stillness and then they'll use adverse circumstances this is a big one right he loves to talk to us through adversity and so David he's king over Israel and the Amalekites come in and they, and they, they, they capture all the, the women and children and burn their city and all of a sudden everybody goes from singing about David and how much of a great king and great warrior is, to now wanting to kill him and, and David starts hearing all of these voices literally and in his mind Your people have turned on you. Your run is over. Your life is going to end. That's it. Your favor is up. Your life is about to take the turn that it should have taken when you went up against Goliath you got lucky when you went up against Goliath but now here it comes how are you going to get out of this one and his mind started talking to him and guess what First Samuel chapter 30 verse 6 says it says that David encouraged himself in the Lord what was happening somebody was talking through adverse circumstances to his mind but David would not let the adversity have the last word and so what did David do David talked back what am I telling you I'm telling you that adversity is going to speak to you you're going to get a bad doctor's report at some point in your life, and it's going to say, you know what, this is going to take you out, but you need to talk back, and you need to say, by the stripes of Jesus, I'm healed, and when it says you're going to die, you need to say, with long life, he'll satisfy me, and show me his salvation, and sometimes he's going to talk to you through your marriage, and you're going to feel like it's time for a divorce, and you need to talk back, and you need to say, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, and he's going to talk to you through impossible circumstances, and you need to talk back, and You need to say, with God, all things are possible. You need to talk back to your circumstances. Don't allow the devil to get the final word. One one scripture. Now, I think I want to close with this scripture. Psalm 103, verse number one. It's a very familiar passage of scripture. You've heard it before, but I bet you never understood what it meant. I didn't understand what it meant until couple days ago David says in Psalm 103 beginning in verse 1 he says bless the Lord oh my soul bless the and bless and all that is within me bless his holy name then he says it again bless the Lord oh my soul now you might think like this is just like Christian talk right bless him Lord bless him Lord you know we say that all the time after we talk about somebody. Oh, bless them! We we think that's the disqualifier for the gossip, you know. Bless their heart, you know. You hear hear this? Believe they did that? Oh, bless the Lord! Like we just disqualified all the gossip, right? And so, what does this mean? Bless the Lord. It's actually a command. It's actually David speaking to his soul, saying, "Mind, it's time for you to bless the Lord." it's time for you notice what he says and forget not all his benefits why because when adverse circumstances come your way what do you and i have a tendency to do a tendency to forget the benefits of god so he says and forget not all his benefits he starts out with the most important one who forgives all your iniquity why was he saying that because when you sin guess what comes into your head the voice of shame the voice that says you're not a Christian the voice that says God doesn't love you the voice that says you'll never make it God will never receive you David said oh no soul it's time for you to be commanded to bless the Lord and not forget he forgave all your iniquities and heals all your diseases and crowns thy life with loving kindness and tender mercies what was he doing he was commanding his mind to think right. And this is really what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which is our main text for this whole scripture. And I promise this is the scripture I'll close with. I said to the first service, what does it mean when a pastor says they're closing? Absolutely nothing. Romans Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, notice who, he's, who, who he's, he's talking to us, and he's telling us to do something. He's saying, in other words, this is your responsibility. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to present your bodies unto God as a holy sacrifice. Right? You You do it. And then he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you, notice God, you, 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 that you may prove, experience what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. What's he saying? He's saying it is your responsibility to tell your mind what it should think and what it shouldn't think. Your mind doesn't think all by itself your mind is subject to your will you get to choose what your mind thinks on you get to choose to tell your mind to behave itself to tell your mind to come up out of the gutter to tell your mind to think on good things to tell your mind to bless the Lord to tell your mind to stop thinking on the adversity that the enemy has put you on you get to do that and when you do that you win the battle of your mind talk back it's the only place where it's okay to talk back. And also when the preacher's preaching real good, then you ought to talk back a little bit. You know, one person once told me that when you're eating a dinner and the food is good, let the cook know. Make some groans. Mmm, mmm. Like, what about Bob? Mm, Remember that? Anybody see that? Go home and watch that movie, Hysterical. He's eating the food he hasn't eaten for days, and he, starts eating and he starts making these groans about how good the food is, and everybody else is mad about it except the person who cooked the food who's really appreciated it. So the food, if the food is good, make some noise. If the preacher preaches, make some noise. But also talk back when it comes to what the enemy puts in your mind. Would you stand to your feet?